Jour après jour, garde par ton amour. Jour après jour, à l'abri de ton aide. C'est le repos et la vie éternelle. Je t'appartiens au sauveur. Welcome to the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. What you just heard was singing at a funeral for 31-year-old Haitian immigrant Kalori Akanj, who was living in Tijuana, waiting to apply for asylum in the United States. His death is the latest in the Haitian community to make headlines. It's attributed by activists to the overlapping effects of U.S. border policies coupled with systemic racism. The Haitian Bridge Alliance has paid for 12 funerals for Haitians in Tijuana since December, and the organization says the deaths are often caused by robberies or rejections from hospitals or both. Union Tribune reporter Kate Morrissey and photojournalist Ana Ramirez covered this story. Well, Kate, Anna, thank you for joining me on the News Fix. Um, and, you know, thank you for reporting this um, important story. Uh, Kate, could you, you give me a little background here? Um, how, how did you, you learn of the story and, you know, this, this situation at the border? Well, I'm in contact pretty frequently with um, a lot of different organizations that support asylum seekers in Tijuana. Uh, one of them being Haitian Bridge Alliance and Gerline Joseph. Um, it, it seemed like for, for months, every time I heard from her or was checking in with her, she said, oh, I'm getting ready for another funeral in Tijuana. Oh, I'm going to another funeral in Tijuana. And, um, you know, eventually it, it there, there was enough of a pattern that I think both she and, and the other you know, activists in Tijuana and, and I all were kind of like, oh, there's, there's something going on here. And so they um, used a recent uh, funeral for two um, Haitian asylum seekers to, to sort of talk about these issues. And then um, folks in the community allowed Anna and I to spend some time with them to do sort of a deeper dive into, you know, what is really happening yeah, the Haitian Bridge Alliance has reported uh, 12 Haitians have died since December. Um, and you spoke to others who had been harassed. I mean, what are the reasons for the deaths and what, what is happening to Haitians awaiting asylum? It's, it's a combination of things. Um, a lot of it has to do with systemic racism and discrimination in Mexico. Um, part of it has to do with the fact that they are sort of obligated to be in Mexico because um, U.S. border policies um, don't allow Haitians to access the asylum system. Um, and so many folks are, are sort of stuck, as, as many nationalities are stuck. But um, I think Haitians are, are one of the more affected nationalities when it comes to this Title 42 policy that expels um, many people back to Mexico or their home countries. Um, uh, Haiti actually had, I think, the most expulsion flights of any country um, in May. And so, you know, for a Haitian choosing whether to cross the border or wait in Mexico for policies to change, um, that decision is, is weighed pretty heavily by the fact that there's a very likely chance that they'll be sent back to Haiti 
um, which is not generally uh, a safe place for, for many of them as they're, they're fleeing and, and trying to find a safe place. Um, and so, you know, folks then are, are in, in Tijuana and they um, are frequently targeted for, um, you know, robberies or, or other crimes. Um, and those situations sometimes escalate in, in ways that ends up with the, the Haitian migrant being killed. Um, the, one of the men from the funeral recently was um, walking in, in, in public and, and was, was robbed and beaten. And then um, a few days later, he died. Um, he tried to access medical care at a hospital and was turned away. And that's sort of the second point that a lot of folks in the community are making about why these deaths are happening, which is um, it's very difficult for Haitians to access medical care. Um, the second man at the funeral that happened recently um, was having chest pain um, and had been having chest pain since um, at least Tapachula, which is in Southern Mexico um, and his time there, according to his sister. And he was never able to be seen about it. Um, and he ended up having a heart attack and dying. And he was in his 30s. So you've spoken to a lot of Haitian immigrants at the border. What are some of the, the reasons they've told you uh, they've, they've fled their home country? Haiti has a lot of things going on. There are these sort of armed groups. You sometimes hear them referred to as gangs. Sometimes you hear them referred to as bandits. Um, it gets translated a lot of different ways into English, but um, there are these, these armed groups that sort of control areas in Haiti um, and threaten people and, and kill them. Um, very similar, I think, to um, you know, someone who's fleeing a gang in Honduras or El Salvador, right? Um, when Haitians first started coming to the border here back in 2016, I remember um, a lot of folks talking about them as coming here for purely economic reasons, um, but I don't think that's actually accurate. I think that's um, sort of a, a, a narrative that someone ran with and it's been, uh, no one's taken the time to really uh, check on what are conditions actually like in Haiti and, and people who are arriving now, like what's going on for you? Um, I've met a lot of people who had to flee Haiti because they were um, trying to make their communities better. They were getting involved in, in being activists and um, they were threatened and they had to, had to leave. Um, there are also people who fled Haiti because of the natural disasters that have happened, um, whether it's earthquakes or hurricanes or both um, that have made life very difficult there. Um, but I think the, you know, the instability is, is a really big factor, especially when you consider that last year, the president of the country was assassinated. Um, and what a lot of people have expressed to me is, um, you know, if the president who is supposed to have all the security around him can be assassinated, like what is going to happen to the average everyday person in this country? Um, and so there's, there's a lot of fear, um, even if they initially maybe left because of the, the 
natural disasters that happened. There's a lot of fear among folks about what would happen to them if they go back now. They don't believe that it's safe for them because of this sort of increase in, in violence and, and the, the power that these armed groups have. Um, I think their situation is, is complicated by the fact that a lot of them have spent time in either Brazil or Chile. Um, initially, those countries sort of, and particularly Brazil sort of welcomed Haitians. I'm thinking especially like after the earthquake um, and Haitians were given um, work permits to come and, and build the sites for the Olympics and build the sites for the World Cup because all of those things were going to happen in Brazil. Um, and then once those things happened, Haitians weren't so wanted in Brazil anymore. Um, some of them then went to Chile, so other folks went straight to Chile. Um, and there in Chile, people also experienced a lot of racism, a lot of discrimination, um, weren't able to get, you know, jobs, even it, it, they could have a university degree from Chile and still not be able to get a job in their field because they're Haitian, because they're black. Um, and, and, you know, sort of this, this conglomeration of things has led to a lot of people deciding that the United States is the only place where they can have a decent chance at life. You know, there are a lot of different groups, uh, people from different places, you know, waiting in Tijuana for asylum or for the chance to seek asylum. I mean, when we talk about Haitians, how do they compare to people from other countries? You know, is, is the plight worse or just different? I think, you know, there is an element of the fact that um, Haitian migrants are generally black. And so um, they are more visible. Um, someone who is, you know, from Honduras, if they don't speak and you don't hear their accent, they can blend in a little bit better. You know, and I'm thinking specifically about a woman um, I wrote about who was um, in Tapachula and living in a building that was not supposed to be rented to non-Mexicans, but as long as she didn't speak, she managed to live there, right? Um, someone from Haiti would not be able to blend in in that way. Um, it's, a, it's a quicker recognition that this person is a foreigner, this person is a migrant, this person is vulnerable. I person who's wanting to cause harm can take advantage of this situation. Um, you know, and we even heard stories um, from some of the folks that we interviewed last week about, you know, being extorted by police who would stop the, the person on the street and demand money. Um, and, and we hear that from different nationalities. Like, it's not like we only hear that from Haitians, but um, I think the, the rate is higher um, for Black migrants, and, and part of that is just because they, they're more visible. What kind of anti-discrimination policies, if any, are in place in Mexico? I mean, in your story, you wrote about somebody who was seeking a, an apartment, was approved, and when he showed up and the landlord saw that he was Black, their tone changed. I mean, do they have any recourse? It's hard to say. Um, what's on the books and what happens in practice isn't always the same thing um, in Mexico. Uh, you know, there are uh, government organizations related to human rights and, and things like this. And um, I even saw 
one of the um, activists who had sort of talked with us about this story, he tweeted at the um, Tijuana um, city office for migrant affairs, like the person who's responsible for um, migrant services in Tijuana and asked them, hey, what are you doing about this? Um, tweeting out a link to the article. And um, the city official responded, oh, there's no discrimination in Tijuana, just send them to this office. Um, but that I think for people on the ground, you know, it doesn't see, it's not something that feels very accessible to them. And if, you know, it's the police themselves who are extorting you, how much faith are you going to have in the city, the, like the same government entity, basically like protecting you from the thing that's harming you when it's all connected, right? Like that's, that's part of the issue with corruption and in general and in Mexico specifically or and and Central America as well and and in Haiti we hear we hear about a lot of these kinds of things happening um, um Anna you were at the funeral in person you recorded the audio we played in the intro um you know what what was the the scene like and uh you know how, how did you how did you approach capturing that yeah um I think, you know, when covering grief, it's important to ask yourself, you know, why you're doing this and why you're here. Um, and does the family want you here? And are you doing more good than harm? In this case, yes, the family was comfortable with the media being at the funeral and wanted the story told. Because like we've stated previously, this isn't the first time Haitians have died in TJ or in Mexico. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was obvious sense of loss, but there was also a good sense of love and community. And, you know, my goal with photography is to show that, you know, I think it's an important tool in storytelling. Um, it can show grief in a different way than words can tell, but they both equally play equally important, or sorry but they both play equally important roles. Um, for example, we can see the pain in the faces of the family at the funeral, um, but that photo doesn't go into the details like the sister had with the conversation she had with her brother uh, the day before about you know the surprise he had for her on her birthday things like that. So I, I think when I go into a situation like that, I try to, I try to complement the story as much as I can. Uh, well, let's talk about the sense of community. So you mentioned, you know, absolutely, there's a sense of grief, there are lives being lost, but at the same time, there is a strong sense of community, people being there for each other, people trying to make the situation better. Um, what did you witness while you were down there covering this story? I witnessed a lot of different scenarios where there was a good sense of community and support like you know when the sister was grieving the loss of her brother automatically her cousin jumped in to comfort her you know and so did other community members um and then also everyone was singing together and it was just so powerful hearing that and then while they're singing you know some people are crying but 
you also see the strength in that where everyone's just coming together and being together as one almost. Um, and then another, you know, sense of community, I think Kate wrote about was when we were in the restaurant, you know, we, we saw that family, the, this little restaurant was packed with people, you know, and everyone was eating and, uh, Sayel, who were following, um, he, he noticed that there were there was a family sharing two plates and since his meal was bought he decided to you know sh use the money that he didn't spend on another plate of food for a family he didn't even know and I think that just shows how tight-knit the community is down there. Kate, what have you seen? It seems definitely like, a, you know, a community stepping up to take care of themselves when governments are not necessarily doing it for them. Yeah, you see people buying food for each other. You see servers at Haitian restaurants saying, you know what, you haven't been working. I understand that. I've got you. Here's a, here's a meal. Um, you see people uh who, who have been able to find housing, opening that space up to as many people as they can, crowding people into their living rooms and their bedrooms um, to try to keep people off the street. Um, you know, when we were talking with Sayel and visiting him in his home and we asked him, well, how many people are, are living here? And he was like, well, right now this many, but we used to have even more, but, you know, now they've finally found a place to rent. But, you know, he keeps, he keeps taking in people and, and caring for them as he can and, and trying to help them get on their feet. Um, you know, and Haitian Bridge Alliance even has um, someone working for them in Tijuana who's actually herself um, an asylum seeker from Haiti. Um, and so she's, you know, part of that community, very plugged in with what's going on. And um, her phone is ringing day and night trying to address, you know, different situations that folks are in. Um, we were interviewing her and, and when we were done, um, she got a phone call that she needed to go to the hospital. Um, I found out later that was to be with a woman who uh, was experiencing a miscarriage, um, you know, and so there are, there are structures that the, the Haitian community has, has put in place to be able to share information with each other, support each other as best they can, whether it's, whether it's food or housing or just, you know, sitting and listening to each other. Um, it was, I think, interesting too, the way that, that Sayel sort of moves through downtown Tijuana. Um, he goes there pretty much every day. He doesn't live near there, but he, he takes a pretty long transit ride to get there and um, passes by these different Haitian restaurants and, and then goes to this very specific sidewalk that everyone knows, like, this is the meeting place. This is where you go to get information. This is where you go to to check on things. And he just kind of hangs out there and, and lets people know what's going on or finds out what people need. And, um, we met a family of three that had been living on the street for about a week. Um, their daughter was, I think, four years old. And, um, when Sayel met them, he called the woman from, from Haitian bridge Alliance, and, um, she was able to find a shelter for them, you know? And so, just working amongst each other and, and making those phone calls, they're, they're able to 
um, survive. What has this done to morale in the community? You know, obviously it's a tough thing they're up against, but, you know, with added deaths, with added harassment, um, what have people told you they plan to do going forward? I think people are terrified. You know, that was every interview that we had um, last week. How are you feeling? I'm afraid. I have so much fear. Um, and the, you know, people told me that they often move in groups when they go out, like they try not to go in the street alone. Um, and I think that goes back to the community thing, right? It's like, how do you protect yourself? You stay in community. What's next? You know, you've, you've reported the story, you've shed light on it. Hopefully it improves, but you know, what is, what is the best case scenario for the Haitian community awaiting asylum in Tijuana? To be honest, I don't see things changing much for as long as Haitians are sort of obligated to be in Northern Mexico. Um, I remember interviewing a human rights worker in Tapachula about what happens to Haitians in Mexico more generally. And um, there was this quote for him, and I can't remember it word for word, but he basically said, you know, Mexico is not a safe place for black migrants. Like if you are a black asylum seeker, this is not the place to seek protection. Like it, it's, there's, there's too much discrimination, too much xenophobia, too much racism. Um, and so as long as, as Haitians are sort of forced to be there, um, I don't really see that changing. Uh, we've already heard about another death over the weekend. Um, there was a man who, according to uh, Mexican press, was working in sort of um, a casino type place, like a little casino in English sounds like a more like grand thing. But this is if you think of like a little just like store that's sort of an underground casino type thing. Um, those kinds of places are, are easier to find work if you don't have permission to be working in Mexico. Um, and so he was working there um, and was found um, murdered by, um, by another employee, I think the next day. Ana, is there, is there anything you, you want to add? I, I guess like, so I think, I think when I, I try to approach these stories is um, I also, I think what, why Kate and I work really well together too, is because we don't want to just show the grief and the sadness, you know, we do want to show people being empowered and, you know, having some sort of hope, you know, just, and so that's what I tried to do with the images um, and just showing, I mean, Sael doesn't have much, but <laughs> he makes sure to give everything he can to everyone in this community or share at least.